You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, uh, we got a lot to get to this week, including a whole truckload of UFC 260 preview stuff, as well as Derek Brunson's win over Kevin Holland from Saturday night. But first, we need to spare a few minutes to discuss the sad ballad of the great bombardier. I know this was hard for you. Hey man. In fact, you and I both suffered terrible heart heartache over the weekend (laughs) when first Gregor Gillespie and his UFC return were scratched due to COVID-19 protocols. By the way, COVID-19 protocols, I'm putting this in quotes with my finger. That's, that's, that's rapidly becoming one of the more slippery phrases in all of sports, especially as it pertains to the UFC, because every time I see it, I wonder, what does it mean? What does it mean to, to uh, have a fight scratched, quote, due to COVID-19 protocols? Yeah. Could mean a lot of different things. Could mean that maybe one of your cornermen tested positive. Could mean you snuck in a bag of supposed potatoes yeah. by shimmying across hotel balconies. Yeah, yeah. As a range, so ha- you know? We ha- we had the great heartache of Gregor Gillespie's UFC return being postponed. Then on Saturday, we learned the MMA world had truly suffered a great loss. I guess, first of all, do all the little co-maniacs out there even know that this was a thing that was supposed to happen? KSW 59, we were supposed to have a main event featuring Marius Pujanowski uh, versus Serene Usman, a.k.a. the the Bombardier, the heavyweight Senegalese wrestler, who, I mean, can only be described as absolutely massive. What he, he tipped the scales in, around 3.30, something like that? Yeah, this, this was one where all you'd had to see was the weigh-in stare down, mm-hmm. right? Where Usman tipped the scales at 333 pounds, and he's out there just towering, just absolutely fucking towering over the six foot one, 265 pound former world's strongest man in Marius Pujanowski. This was going to be a super heavyweight class clash for the ages. I saw somebody on Twitter say this is basically what MMA was invented for <laughs> to have the bombardier fight Marius Pujanowski. Unfortunately, Ben, it was not to be as the bombardier was stricken with appendicitis. This is a new one on me. I've actually never, I don't know that I've ever heard of a fight being canceled due to a last minute case of acute appendicitis. Yeah, it's poor damn timing to say the least. It really is. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that makes you wonder if the bombardier was planning on fighting at all. (laughs) Well, credit to KSW though, because they really adopted a show must go on mentality here. Yes, they did. Normally, we'd say if a guy gets pulled out, was it day of or night before? I believe, let's see, I got this guy's name written down. Nikola Milinovic took this fight, according to the KSW broadcasters themselves, an hour 
before fight time. <laughs> well, because well, I I saw it on social media that the Bombardier was out and KSW was looking for a new opponent, and I was like, wait, isn't it isn't it later today? Isn't the fight supposed to be? Today and you're looking yeah. for a new opponent. Who are you going to get to fight Marius Pudzianowski? Where you're going? They got to be somewhere in the weight class for one thing. He's a big goddamn dude. But then to go in there and be like, "Hey, you heard of local celebrity and former world's strongest man, Marius Pudzianowski?" And they're like, "Yeah, of course I heard of him, man. I love his love his heavy metal band. Uh, love the way he used to, you know, throw some Atlas stones around." And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, cool, cool." So would you want to fight him? <laughs> like, like They're maybe the, the like the, like later today, you know. KSW what do you think? KSW matchmakers are out in the street flagging down Warsaw taxi drivers, <laughs> asking them if they want to come inside and fight Marius Pujanowski. They did find local judo instructor Nikola Milanovic. I believe he also uh, had some MMA experience. He goes in there. Ben, did you watch this fight? No, because I, I have. I have watched this fight. It's about. A minute and ten seconds long. Okay. Uh, I mean, you got to give Milanovic credit for going out there. He's trying to throw some push push kicks. He's trying to throw throw some strikes, and then uh, gets succeeds and gets Marius Pujanowski into the clinch, and then tries to do first a couple trip takedowns on him, and then he shoots shoots a quick double, and you get not one but two of the most egregious cage grabs that you will ever see in your <laughs> life. From Marius Pujanowski. Not a word spoken about it <laughs> on the, the KSW broadcast. Okay, and then, uh, didn't happen. Okay. Yeah, he manages to ward off the takedown defense. Nikola Milanovic gets down kind of on uh, all fours, turtle position. And it, that's pretty much all she wrote right there. A couple strikes from Marius Pujanowski, and we get a stoppage in this thing. But uh, not since the Fedor Emelianenko rope grab against Matt Lindland do I recall the more egregious and yet unspoken. Uh, fence grab or or rope grab from a, a heavily favored fighter here. I mean, KSW is not booking these things so Marius Pujanowski can go out there and lose, right? Even when, even if you had the Bombardier, the 2-0 Bombardier out there, uh, we're not putting this thing together so that Marius Pujanowski can lose in front of the, the home country fans. I just, I don't understand how you, you managed to see this fight on the internet and you didn't think, hey, you know who might enjoy seeing this? You know who might want to link? Dropped into his inbox is my good pal Ben Folks. I can shoot you a link. I can, I can find you this link and, sh- and shoot this it to you over there again. Feels like I shouldn't have to ask, you know? Okay. I, maybe I assumed you would have your house in order. And I you looked have for already it. watched this I looked thing. for it. I, could, I, I mean, granted, I didn't exactly pull out all the stops. I was just like, let's see if I could find it on Twitter. And I couldn't. But, uh, you know, I guess now I know who my friends are. Yeah, you didn't look that hard is what you're saying. Uh, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper right now. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines and podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun now, brothers and sisters, you absolutely need to check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event because Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there with three additional podcasts every single week. 
If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, you can check out the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, where we spend a full hour answering questions from the beloved patrons of the CME. We've also got the Friday Power Hour podcast, an additional hour of curated MMA talk, which features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings. And I'll be honest, the Power Hour, Ben, comes in really handy when the UFC does some stuff like sneaks in like a thief in the night and tries to drop a bunch of hot lightweight news on a Thursday afternoon talking about Habib Nurmagomedov is actually retired and now we're going to do Chucky Olives versus Mikey Chandler for the belt in the olden times. That would have been a problem for this podcast. That would have put us in a bind. But now... Midweek breaking news, no problem. We got your hot takes over there at the Patreon Power Hour. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, for the well-rounded fight fans, we've got the Thursday Movie Club this week. We're getting close to wrapping up Monster Movie Month with a little palate cleanser. We're going to be watching The Great and Terrible Gremlins 2. Ben, this was your idea. Defend yourself, sir. Well, uh, these were both suggested. These were listener suggestions that... We were pitched the idea, let's do as our palate cleanser, Monster Movie Club Flyweight Edition. Yeah. Pitting Critters versus Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2 won 61% of the vote. Pretty, Pretty strong handy. showing for Gremlins yeah. 2, the new batch. Um, I mean, I get it. I, I kind of wanted to revisit Critters just because I had such a vague recollection of watching it. On VHS as a child, one of those got it at one of those movie rental places you could ride your bike to. One that wasn't even a chain; it was just like super great video, and you'd ride down there. And I remember getting critters and watching it and being like, "Okay, all I remember now is that there are little rolling balls of teeth, basically, and some space aliens came to help destroy them. And one of the space aliens was like a dude, but who had like massive fake breasts somehow." But I could be just totally misremembering that. And so I wanted to go back and check it out. But you know what? The people have spoken. They want Gremlins 2. The movie's so ridiculous that Key and Peele made a comedy sketch all about answering the question, how did this film get made? What, yeah. what were they thinking when they made this film? And it's one of my favorite Key and Peele sketches. Worth, worth maybe even sparing some time to discuss after we have both watched the movie. But you know what? I think the palettes are going to be thoroughly cleansed after this one, and we're ready to close out Monster Movie Club Month with that King Kong Godzilla thing that's supposed to be on HBO Max at the end of the month. Yeah. So if you want to get down with any and all of that, you can join the team over at patreon.com slash co-main event. If you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you'd buy my newest novel, The Blaze, wherever books are sold. Publishers Weekly called it an exceptional thriller. So go out and grab The Blaze today. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you enjoy it, please go leave me a review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever you like. Uh, We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash. That's an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more of their stuff over at foreigncash.bandcamp.com. And of course, you know, that's cash, C-A-C-H-E in foreign cash. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So 
do we want Kevin Holland to talk during his fights or not? Or do we only want him to talk in the fights he's going to win? And if he's going to talk, do we need him to win every fight? Or if he stops talking, then is it okay for him to lose to a much more experienced UFC veteran who also happens to be a terrible style matchup for him? I'm confused. And in round number two, what's really going on inside the UFC's Las Vegas COVID bubble? And in round number three, the prognostication that could tear the CME apart. It's Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou 2 this weekend for the heavyweight title at UFC 260. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dave, Dave, Dave. Okay. Is that like a relative of Tony, Tony, Tony? I guess, yeah. Or maybe it's three individual Daves. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, Dave, Dave, Dave writes, So Habib is out and King Chuck and Michael Chandler are in. My question is, are you feeling a little bit pissed about this if you're Justin Gaethje? Do you think Dustin Poirier ever has a moment where he stares deeply into his own eyes in the mirror and wonders if he made a mistake signing on for a redo with McGregor rather than pursuing his championship dreams? Or can he make himself feel better just by rolling around on a big bed made out of money? Please discourse. Uh, So we talked about this, as I said, on Friday's Power Hour, Ben. Some breaking news, according to the UFC from five months ago. uh, Habib Nurmagomedov now, quote unquote, officially retired, though he's been telling us he was retired since October. I guess Dana White finally decided to give up the ghost here. Maybe he got sick of uh, buying the lightweight champion free dinners out there at Las Vegas's finest restaurants. In any case... We're going to vacate that bad boy and move on with Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. I believe that's at UFC 262. Is that right? Is that when we're doing this? I believe so. So we're going to have a new lightweight champ at that event. But, uh, you know, there's been some questions. We got numerous questions in listener mail this week about Justin Gaethje, about Dustin Poirier. We got one about Dan Hooker. I mean, I guess some people were naturally going to get left on the outside looking in here. Are you okay with Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler? Or would you have liked to see a Justin Gaethje, a Dan Hooker, or even a Dustin Poirier subbed in for one of those, for one of those two guys? I'm not going to sit here and complain about a Michael Chandler versus Charles Oliveira fight for the vacant title. Because that's just, that's a good fight. It makes sense. I can see what the thinking was there. I do feel a little bit bad for Justin Gaethje, especially after he got on social media and was like, hey, I've been over here training for a fight against Michael Chandler. That's what I thought was going on. And and you do wonder what kind of conversations have been happening. Like if Justin Gaethje just thought, like, well, for sure, they'll do me and Michael Chandler. Or if people were like, dude, book it. It's a lock. You should start training now. Because if, if that's the case... The latter is, if that's the case, I could understand him being really pissed off. I still yeah. think you can book Justin Gaethje against almost any breathing human being, and I will still watch it. So he's got that going for him, which is a nice thing to have in your back pocket in the lightweight right. division, in a crowded lightweight division. Uh, as far as Dustin Poirier, like I can understand how initially when we hear this announcement that Chandler and Oliveira are going to do it for the vacant title, everybody's going... What about Poirier, who seems yeah. like he has been right there, was an interim champ, just beat Conor McGregor decisively. No, no real question about that. How can we have a, a, a fight for the vacant title and not have him involved? And yet, 
if I'm Dustin Poirier and they come to me and they say, we want you to turn right around and do that McGregor rematch, that's where you might feel like you're in a little bit of a driver's seat negotiation-wise and say, I'll do it if I get points on the pay-per-view this time. Yeah. And if and if he's not doing that, if he's just saying, I'll turn around and fight Conor McGregor for my normal contracted show and win money or whatever he's on right now, and again, you can shut me out of the pay-per-view money, well, I, I question his representation. Because that's the only reason to do the Conor McGregor fight again, right? You just come off this big win over the guy. If you're not seeing a portion of that that Conor McGregor red panty night money that he's bringing in, then why agree to do it? Why not just say like, no, I beat the guy. It's over. I'll I'll wait for you for my title shot. Unless yeah. you just believe that the UFC out of spite would go out of their way to screw you so bad. Right. I mean, Dustin Poirier, to his credit, is on record believing that he already is the champion okay. and that I think he, he was pretty much clear from the beginning in the wake of that first McGregor win that he would do the more lucrative thing. And if they wanted him to fight Conor McGregor again, uh, that would be that would be fine. He would certainly oblige them. Clearly, in Dustin Poirier's mind, he's just going to go out there and beat McGregor again and then probably either still already be the champion or in his mind or officially be the number one contender. Uh, it also could be some weird timing here. You're not going to go out and unbook Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor to put him in the vacant lightweight title fight. Remember up until Thursday or whatever it was, the UFC was still pretty much considering Habib Nurmagomedov to be the champ. So if they finally decide to part ways with him, at least for the time being, and Poirier versus McGregor is already booked. Uh, it's, it's not already booked though. I mean, they don't have a date or anything. Yeah, but that's what they're doing. Everybody knows that. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe uh, Justin Gaethje thought what they were doing was uh, him versus Michael Chandler, too. So uh, I guess plans can change. As we know, Card always subject to change in this sport. But I think you, you probably, all parties involved, probably want to go ahead with Poirier versus McGregor. And I know that the UFC purists out there are probably going to take issue with Michael Chandler getting the Anderson Silva treatment where he wins one fight and gets fast forwarded into a title shot here. But the nature of the win over Dan Hooker, the kind of the hype behind Michael Chandler coming into the UFC, I think justifies it in some way. Uh, I guess there is a little bit of a question of where Justin Gaethje is going to fit into all of this, since we're also going to do uh, Benil Dariush versus Tony Ferguson. Most of those top lightweight guys right now are spoken for. So unless you're going to do like Gaethje versus Dan Hooker, which would be, uh, you know, f- probably again, fine, fine by all involved. It's, 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 uh, it is a little bit of a mystery here where, where Justin Gaethje is going to fit into all this stuff. Yeah. But you know what, in the age of COVID protocols, you might just want to stay ready if you're Justin That's Gaethje. True. That is true. That is true. Uh, we're going to do these next two together because they kind of, uh, uh, compliment each other. We've got one question here from Steven Sprang over on Patreon. He writes, JP Bay's on the receiving end of some serious Dundasso by Silva tonight. It made me wonder if Dundasso has something like the Gordy Howe hat trick that I didn't know about. Groin kick, eye poke, and fence grab. Do you get extra credit for doing all three in one round? And then we got one from Juliet Hume who writes, uh, should you be eligible for a performance bonus if you kicked your opponent's nuts and poked his eye in the fight? I'm talking to you, Bruno Silva, Dundasso at its finest. Uh, so yeah, Bruno does Bruno uh, Silva defeats JP Bay's second round TKO in the in the first fight of the night on the preliminary card over there this weekend, and then uh, he goes out and nabs himself a fifty thousand dollar performance of the night bonus when it's all over. And I don't know that I've ever seen this this floated as an idea, Ben, but we've been trying to figure out 
What do we do about these fouls? How do we curtail all these fouls in MMA? Is it a good or bad idea to say, even if you don't get penalized for it during the fight, if you commit a foul or if you commit an egregious foul, you're not going to be eligible for some of this post-fight bonus stuff? Yeah, I guess it gets kind of subjective at a certain point, just because uh, you're you're putting up more barriers to people getting that $50,000 money and you're also leaving it in the UFC's hands to maybe decide, oh, you know what? There were too many fouls tonight, so we're just going to keep that money in the pocket. Not going not right. to hand out that 50000 I mean, for one thing, it's rare enough that uh, Bruno De Silva gets a, a $50,000 bonus fighting in the curtain jerker. Yeah, That's the first fight of the night, and he goes out there on the prelims. Usually, if you're on the prelims, it's kind of hard to get a bonus to go out there, you know, first off, right, right off the bat. And uh, knock somebody out and get a bonus on a, on a card where, frankly, there's a lot of knockouts. There's a lot of different fights that could have been chosen there. You get to feel pretty good about it. As far as the the Gordie Howe hat trick of Dundasso, that is, eye poke, fence grab, groin shot, stuff like that. I think that that's actually the smartest way to go. Because if you commit more than one of the same foul in the same fight, then it's more likely that the referee is going to start to notice and people will pay attention to it. You know, yeah. you, you kick a guy in the groin a couple times, you poke him in the eye a couple times. It's hard for us to keep letting it slide. But if you mix it up, you know, little fence grab here, grab the shorts over here, maybe get your fingers in some gloves over here. You know, it's just a little bit of everything, kind of a grab bag of fouls. We're less likely to notice any one foul. Yeah, one of the main tenets of Dundasso, in fact, is that you get one freebie of each. Mm-hmm. So you gotta you gotta mix them up. You gotta go one eye poke, one shorts grab, one low blow, one fence grab, or if you're Marius Pujanowski, two right in a row with either hand. Ambidextrous <laughs> yes. is the former world's strongest man. Uh, but yeah, man, you gotta you gotta mix them up so that that they don't start stacking up on top of you. And uh, and Silva does that well here. Any, in fact, I'm sitting at home. Anytime my my uh, my mentions start blowing up, mm-hmm. I'm refreshing Twitter. All of a sudden, I got like 35 mentions. I'm like, well, wait a second. Either something really bad has just happened to me or there's been a foul in an MMA fight. Because yeah. people are going to come, they're going to come let me know immediately that the great art of Dundasso is, is, on, is on showcase out there in the UFC. What a pleasant niche you've carved out for yourself there. Indeed. Somebody indeed. gets kicked in the balls on TV and the first person people think of is Chad Dundas. That's right. That's the best I could hope for. Next question this week comes to us from Jose Saramago. So I don't know if this is the Nobel Prize winning author, okay. Jose Saramago, but they do note here that their preferred pronouns are they, them. Okay. So Jose Saramago writes, the fights involving JP and Cheyenne Bays troubled me, and not just because I was concerned somebody might follow somebody home. JP suffered a KO loss and then had to try and gather his wits to be helpful in his wife's corner later that same evening. Cheyenne had to set aside the emotional toll of watching her husband get knocked out in order to focus on her own fight. One has to wonder, could any of us effectively corner our spouse after being concussed? And could said spouse effectively perform in competition after watching us get our brains rattled? Could the emotions at play have factored into those post-fight altercations? And for goodness sake, should we expect a little bit more awareness from Ruiz in regard to what her opponent was dealing with outside of the three rounds of competition? All this is to say, perhaps having couples fight on the same card is not the greatest idea. We will point out it is rare pretty rare to have a husband and wife team fight on the same MMA card. And in some ways it makes sense 
right? Because if you are uh, JP and Cheyenne Bays, might as well have both you guys getting ready for a fight at the same time. So you can both be in fight cam, you could camp, you can both be doing the same things, going through the same trials and tribulations, the same uh, ramp up and training, the same, the same cut down in, in, uh, in weight, the same, you know, the same, everything, the same travel, all that stuff. So in some ways I feel like it makes a lot of sense. In another way, I can definitely see the point here that, uh, this is going to be a high pressure emotional situation for the family, for the whole family. If, uh, if the husband and wife are both going to fight on the same night. Yeah. And it also puts them under the microscope a little more because the UFC kind of made a big deal about it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, here we go. We got this husband and wife team on the same card right off the top of the broadcast. We're going to talk about it and everything. And so you're really putting the focus on. And when JP goes out there and gets knocked out, everybody is then going to be thinking, well, how does that affect his wife in the back sitting there getting ready for her fight? And, when when she goes out there and loses too, you've just you've created this narrative without necessarily meaning to of like well bad night in the base household, you know they go zero for two here, and I've talked to to fighters and coaches about how they handle a situation when you have two or three guys from the same team who are on one fight card and how it does make a lot of sense for them. I think more so for teammates than for spouses, honestly, because when I've talked to fighters who are in relationships with other fighters, they're like, you kind of need for one of you to be the selfish person in camp at a time. You know, you need the other person to be like, hey, what do you need? Can I can I cook you a, a chicken breast or something like that? You can't both be grumpy and pissed off and coming home from training and in that mode. I mean, maybe some couples can, but I, from what I've heard from other fighter couples, it helps to, you know, stagger that out a little bit more. But I've heard definitely coaches say, you got to have a plan for how you're going to deal with it. If you've got guys on the same team, it's helpful for them to be able to all be peaking in training camp together. It, they don't have to, especially if they're around the same weight, it prevents them having to hunt around for sparring partners because you got a couple other guys in the gym who are preparing for the same date. They're going to be in the gym too. They're not going to miss training sessions. It's helpful in that way. It's helpful maybe for the UFC that, hey, we can save some money on corner costs if you all got the same coaches, you know, and get you all out there at the same time. But also, the, you've got to have a plan if the first guy goes out there and gets knocked out, you don't want him bringing that negative energy back into the locker room. And everybody's going to be, they were going to want to watch it. You know, they're going to want to watch, they got the monitors backstage. They're going to want to watch their teammate. And you don't want it to set like this downer mood of, wait, hold on. He looked like a fucking killer in training. And he went out there and just got starched. I felt pretty good about my training until now, until I saw what I, you know, you don't want to create that, that sort of momentum. And so you got to have some kind of pre-plan for how you're going to deal with that. And I think that those emotions would be even more difficult if you're talking about spouses. Yeah. You don't want a, a person who just lost standing there in the corner between rounds being like, you know what? What does it even matter? <laughs> this sucks. This whole yeah. sport sucks. We should all quit. The world is already on fire. What does it even matter if you win or lose in this silly little fight? Yeah. You know, you know what I was wondering about on that same token, I saw the tweet, uh, on Saturday night that Jesse Strader who got TKO'd in the second fight of the night against Montel Jackson is training Aaron Carter for his celebrity boxing match in Triller, I believe against Lamar Odom. Isn't that the matchup Lamar Odom against Aaron Carter? You could say almost any two famous people's names for these Triller fight cards at this point. And I would believe you. 
So if you're Aaron Carter and you're at home watching the fight and the guy who's training you gets TKO'd in a minute and 58 seconds, are you looking around? Are you looking around the living room being like, oh man, I I was feeling pretty good about how all this was going until about five seconds ago. Now, <laughs> now do I need to start looking around for a different coach? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the risk you take, I guess. Somebody got to win, somebody got to uh, lose. It reminds me of going to that sport fight event mm-hmm. in uh, in Gresham, Oregon, that we that we went to years ago. Now you can talk about the bear uh, clan now. Yeah, yeah. We're like the okay. whole it, the whole thing. Once you had seen it, seemed like it was engineered for the these guys from this one martial arts studio called the Bear Clan to kind of come in and get their butts whipped by a bunch of guys from Team Quest, yeah. who was yeah. Randy Couture and and Matt Lindland's team that was hosting and promoting the sport fight event. And I, if if memory serves, it kind of uh, culminated. With the head coach yeah. of the Bear Clan coming in and getting beat up, I think by Chris Wilson, who was a, a like a pretty legit Team Quest member at the time. And afterward, we had to wonder, man, if you're if you're a member of the Bear Clan, how you feeling on Sunday morning when you got your clock cleaned? Everybody on the team pretty much got beat down on fight night. That's that's one of those things where you got to be like, maybe we need to take a different approach. As I recall. First of all, weren't they a Hopkido gym? That could be. That sounds I right. I believe that that was their specialty was Hopkido. I mean, given this was, what I know about independent MMA matchmaking, that would make sense. This was like 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. So it was still the era when maybe somebody would just show up to a local MMA promotion in Oregon and be like, "We study, you know, Kempo or whatever," and like, "We're here to do the thing." And the they all got matched up against Team Quest guys, all got taken down and beat up, I believe. The the sensei, didn't he have, his, his nickname was like Flash, and he wore legitimately dope Flash Gordon trunks with like, like red with the Flash symbol on them. Yeah. Uh, and then Chris Wilson just beat the hell out of him. And I remember seeing one of those guys afterwards kind of standing there watching one of the, his teammates' fights. And he was, you know, just standing in the crowd, like, drinking a beer. And his face was so beat up, it looked like his eye had been moved, like, two inches further down his face. And I remember just thinking, there's two ways this goes. Like, either you're a Bear Clan member and you go, you know what? Those Team Quest guys know something we don't. We should go yeah. try to get a class at Team Quest or something similar. Try to learn some wrestling and some ground and pound and stuff. Round out our games a little bit. Or you just show back up at the Bear Clan gym on Monday and you're like, you know what? We got to buckle down, guys. Yep. We got we to gotta get serious about our hop keto. Because it's not the art that failed. It's us. <laughs> a true craftsman does not blame his tools. Nope. All right, well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I'm just going to read this quote from UFC President Dana White speaking with uh, Yahoo Sports in the wake of Kevin Holland's unanimous decision loss to Derek Brunson in the main event of this UFC fight night on Saturday night. I think that was a mental breakdown 
UFC president Dana White said, The only other thing I saw like it was in boxing, when Lennox Lewis fought that guy Oliver McCall, who kept his hands at his side and was crying. I don't know what he was doing. I think he might not have been able to handle the pressure and just broke mentally. I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, what? Yeah, that's weird. That's, I, I don't... I don't know exactly what this means because uh, Kevin Holland has done this all along. This is basically Kevin Holland's gimmick as an MMA fighter is that he's the guy who talks all the way through his fights. And Dana White is on record knowing about this and like nicknamed famously Kevin Holland, quote unquote, big mouth during his appearance on the Contender Series and seems to be more or less either on board one way or another with what Ken, Kevin Holland does in the cage. And yet this is the quote we get from him after the fact. At, personally, at, when watching this, when watching Kevin Holland get beat by Derek Brunson on Saturday night, the first place I went was not mental breakdown. No, no. I'll just say that. Well, I, is it possible have we considered the possibility that while the rest of us were watching screens that showed Kevin Holland versus Derek Brunson, did Dana White accidentally watch that Chael Sonnen Paulo Filo rematch from the WEC? Because that yeah. seems like what he's describing when he's talking yeah, about that's the a mental breakdown. Yeah, like Oliver McCall, like crying in in the ring. That's more like that Paulo Filo situation where he seemed to be having conversations with ghosts while he was fighting Chael Sonnen, and everybody was like, "This is super weird." What Kevin Holland did was all the same stuff he's been doing. He just lost this time because he couldn't stop Derek Brunson's wrestling. I don't Yeah. I get that because he's brought all this attention to himself with the talking and the, you know, the personality that is that we we all frankly seem to enjoy a whole hell of a lot when he won five fights in a row in 2020. But then he comes in here, he's doing all that same stuff, like talking to Khabib cage side during the fight, talking to Derek Brunson as he's been taken down. It's all the same stuff that ESPN just made like a whole highlight of him doing. And everybody yeah. loved it. We fucking loved it. And then he goes in there, he does it against Derek Brunson, but just isn't able to pull off the knockout win. Instead, just keeps getting taken down. You know, has a couple bright spots here and there, but mostly just keeps getting taken down and held there by a guy who is known to be able to do that to people. And then it's like, well, see, it was all because he's talking too much. No, man. No, he, he could have been totally silent and he was still going to get taken down by Derek Brunson and held there just because clearly right. Derek Brunson is exploiting uh, a hole in his game. He's not exploiting. And, and honestly, Derek Brunson was not falling into the trap of letting this guy talk to you so much that you get so fired up and you lose your composure or you get away from your own game plan. Like that's kind of yeah. I, I get why people want to point to that thing with Kevin Holland because it's the most noticeable thing. But. I don't, there's no way you can convince me that that's the difference between winning and losing in that fight. Right. I mean, it is a high stakes gimmick to have that as your thing, right? That you're going to talk the whole time because then when you lose a fight, it does open you up to the obvious criticism. But I would agree with you in saying that I don't think that the talking was Kevin Holland's problem in that fight. Like, as you said, like, I think he could have gone out there totally mute and still lost this fight to Derek Brunson. The problem seemed to be more technical to me. Uh, and, and you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that Kevin Holland slipped a couple times on the canvas, at least twice. But if you're Kevin Holland, you know, you're a lanky middleweight with rangy punches and pretty significant power. So the riddle that you have to solve to be successful in this sport and to be successful 
uh, most specifically against a guy like Derek Brunson is to be able to throw those strikes while keeping Brunson off of you to stay out of the clinch, not to get taken down. And if you do get taken down, like you have to be able to get back up. And like, I don't know if, uh, if Kevin Holland's gift of gab, if the fact that he's kind of running an ongoing patter throughout the fight really had anything to do with it. And like, furthermore, one of the interesting things to me about Kevin Holland talking during these fights is that it's not exactly like he is being cocky about it. Like he's not, the things that he is saying are not, I'm the best. And like, you got nothing for me. He's honestly just kind of running what sounds like a very honest commentary on what is happening at all times. Like in between rounds, like when he's having a really hard time and it's clearly he can't, can't keep Derek Brunson from taking him down. Can't keep Derek Brunson off of him. And his coach is like, Hey man, I believe in you. And Kevin Holland turns to him and goes, I believe in me too, but shit. Like, (laughs) do you see what's happening out there? Like, I don't know, man. I kind of find like, I kind of find Kevin Holland's talking adorable for that reason that like, he's not, he is, he is using it as like mental warfare for sure. But at the same time, like he's not doing it in like an ostentatious, super cocky way. He's doing it in like a, a, I am just running a stream of consciousness kind of thing during my fights kind of a way. And he did get back up a few times. The problem is as soon as he'd get back up, Derek Brunson just stayed on him and would take him back down again. And I think people see some of that and they go, oh, where's your sense of urgency about this? Especially later in the fight when you're down, you know, a few rounds clearly and it's looking like you need to finish and you're still doing the same thing. And then I think they get mad at him because they're like, you're not taking this seriously. And it's like, I could see how in Kevin Holland's mind, he'd be like, if I stop talking in round four, then he knows he's got me. He knows I'm worried. You know, if if I've been doing this the whole time, this has been my thing then I, I can't just abandon it because then it'll look like I'm panicking and then he'll he'll feel like he has mentally broken me. I, if, you, if you're doing that as your thing, you, and probably for your own mental approach to it, you probably feel like this is how I fight. And maybe it's to take a little bit of the pressure off yourself. Maybe it's to get your opponent thinking about that instead of about what you're doing. Maybe it's a combination of things. But if that's your thing, I can understand how you don't want to just completely abandon it just because things aren't going well. And even if people are going to come to you afterwards and be like, well, where was your sense of urgency about this? I mean, he's getting elbowed in the face by Derek Brunson. I think he's taking it seriously. I don't, I don't yeah. think that he saw that as just a trifle, a, a meaningless lark as Derek Brunson is holding him down and elbowing him in the mouth. I, I yeah. think that he understood the urgency of the situation. I think he just, he got taken down by a better wrestler and a bigger, stronger guy who was able to hold him down there. And I also think like when you focus so much on that, you're like, Kevin Holland had a mental breakdown. You're not giving Derek Brunson any goddamn credit, man. Like, especially as they mentioned several times on the commentary, since moving to that, that Sanford MMA team, working with Henry Hooft and those guys, since changing teams and getting down there, Derek Brunson hasn't lost a fight in the UFC. Maybe yeah. that should tell you that the guy has turned a little bit of a corner, figured out some stuff and become a, a better fighter and in, is improving as a fighter still and actually went in there with a smart game plan and executed it. And you're not giving him any credit if you're just like Kevin Holland had suffered a psychological break. Right. Uh, whenever something like this comes up, I always return to the idea that the thing that the UFC and in many cases, some fans ask its fighters to do 
is impossible, man, because basically the UFC asks fighters to be Kevin Holland. Like, remember when Stephen A. Smith practically begged Dana White to highlight one up and coming fighter who could become a star and Kevin Holland who was not Conor McGregor. Yeah was the only guy that Dana White could think of off the top of his head. So, like, clearly the thing that Kevin Holland does has been working. Like, the reason that he is out there in the main event in this fight is not just because he had won five fights in a row. It's not just because he beat Jacare in his last fight. But it's because he has carved out this niche for himself as, like, this guy who talks throughout his fights. Because the UFC asks its fighters to be interesting to set themselves apart from the pack. And the and at the same time, the UFC also wants you to compete and fight with complete reckless abandon, to be exciting, as we always hear. It doesn't really want guys to fight like Derek Brunson, right? Like, And so it, it, it asks you to be all of these things, interesting, remember, you know, memorable, uh, exciting, and yet it also commands that you win all of your fights. And if you don't, we're going to say you had a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. That to me just seems impossible for an athlete to like do all of those things. Because what are we really saying? Like, are we saying that we wanted Kevin Holland to do it more like what like Derek Brunson did? Because in the wake of the fight, I don't think that's really what we wanted, was it? Yeah, and I mean, why... Why then would we be focusing so much on Kevin Holland fucked up rather than Derek Brunson did a great job? Right, exactly. Like, nobody's talking about Derek Brunson in the wake of this thing. We're all still talking about Kevin Holland, which if you're Kevin Holland, probably not the worst thing in the world for you. Uh, but let's, you know, you, you brought up Derek Brunson a minute ago. Let's let's talk about him just for a second here. He has four wins in a row. Uh, in this division, we've been trying to scrounge around to find a challenger for Israel Adesanya. Obviously, Derek Brunson is in a tough spot because he lost to Israel Adesanya at UFC 230. But, you know, we've got Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gastelum. Uh, Adesanya himself is focused a lot on Darren Till. Uh, and and in the post-fight of this thing, Derek Brunson Paul called out Paulo Costa, who's a guy whose health were not totally certain of at this point but like i don't know man like you said derek brunson has not lost since he has changed teams and just watching him especially in this fight he seems to have like a compelling matchup of styles right now like he can strike a little bit and he can also pull out these takedowns and and top control and ground and pound when he needs to obviously i'm not saying derek brunson is going to run out and be the ufc middleweight champion anytime soon but he seems to me like he's a fairly interesting dude in this division right now, especially now that he has four wins in a row uh, and is kind of rolling, rolling through these prospects that that when you see the initial matchmaking, you think we're trying to use Derek Brunson as a stepping stone here yeah. and he just won't he just won't hear of it. Yeah, and that's what especially the last two sure look like, right? Like that Edmund Shabazian one where the UFC spent the entire time hyping up uh, Shabazian, he's Ronda Rousey's guy, all this stuff beforehand. It did not seem like... They're doing all that so that when Derek Brunson beat him, there'd be a lot of shine on Derek Brunson's name. But then he goes out there, he stops that hype train. Then you give him Kevin Holland, who's coming off these five straight wins and is the one guy, as you said, that that Dana White singled out when when begged to by Stephen A. Smith. And he stops that hype train as well. And you know what? You know how I beat Derek Brunson, Chad? I, I make sure that I sabotage his hair dye. Before the fight. Blonde Derek Brunson is a damn problem. If he comes yeah. out there with that bleach blonde look, you're in trouble. But you know what? If uh, 
you know, he, he shows up in Vegas and the stores are all sold out. Can't get a booking at any salon, nothing like that. Then, then I think you're in Derek Brunson's head and he knows that you're, you're playing chess. He's playing checkers. I mean, that's just another idea to put on the list for, uh, for our consulting firm. That's right. You Venmo us 40 bucks. Say, how do I beat Derek Brunson? We tell him, all right. You need to go to every store that sells hair dye in the greater Las Vegas area. Don't let them have it. It's, don't let them have that hair dye. Don't let them have it. All right, Ben, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, we mentioned it earlier, but one of the greatest moments in UFC history occurred on Saturday night at the end of the Cheyenne Bay's fight against Monsterat Ruiz. These, these two ladies got into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's some bad blood here. And then following the end of the fight, Cheyenne Bay's uh, gets separated. She gets up against the, against the cage, turns around, flips the bird and says, and I quote, I'll follow you home, bitch. Are you fucking kidding me? Cheyenne Bay's team Dundas for life. That's right all it there. takes, huh? I'll follow you home, bitch. I couldn't love it anymore. Couldn't possibly love it anymore. Seems like maybe there was a misunderstanding there. That seemed like maybe Cheyenne Bays thought she was spit on. Ruiz said she didn't do it. Ruiz says, uh, I mean, it all it all started when Bays disrespected her takedowns, which, hey, man, you don't disrespect someone's takedowns. That's how you get yourself in trouble right there. Uh, but yeah, she says, no, I didn't spit on her. Probably it was just the momentum. I'm not the kind of person that likes to spit. If you spit on someone, that's crossing the line. And that wasn't something I was thinking of doing in my debut. So there was, you know, we crossed the streams somewhere in this thing. But I don't know, man. I'll follow you home, bitch. That's right up there with are you still there, pussy, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I feel like if you really do plan to follow somebody home, though, you don't tell them beforehand. Because. Yeah, you don't want them looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah. like Watching for tails and whatnot. That's right. Because you know what? I just decided to go on a little bit of a drive about. Once I heard you were following me home, I'm going to Santa Barbara. Let's yeah, enjoy a so road got trip. The bigger gas tank. Uh huh. Literally. Chad, my are you fucking kidding me this week? We as we talked about on the Power Hour on Friday, it's official that Habib Nurmagomedov is retired. Even though he told us that in October, it yep. seemed like the only side really telling us that it wasn't official since then has been the UFC and UFC president Dana White. And then finally Dana White tells Brett Akamoto at ESPN, it's official. He's officially retired. And so then everybody just repeats that. Well, he's officially retired now because the, the boss said he is. Then Habib is asked about it. Here's his quote. No, in response to if he ever even contemplated coming back, but Dana called this official. Uh, Nurmagomedov said with a laugh. This is from the MMA fighting story here by Damon Martin. Uh, I, but I retired like five, six months ago. It's very funny. Dana told me when he posted this, he said someone write me comment about, he not he retired not today, he retired like five months ago. It's funny a little bit, but we have some conversations with Dana a couple times. Like two days ago, we meet with him, sit, talk like two real men. We have a very good conversation with him. Good dinner. All this stuff... The decision 2.0, the, you got to tune in to the fight night on ABC to hear the announcement about what Khabib is going to do all this time. And he was never even thinking about it. Mm, no. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. It's almost as if maybe we just shouldn't let 
Dana White just say stuff and we just print it as if it is 100% true every single time. Huh. Maybe he's earned himself weird. a little bit of skepticism from the MMA media. Fuck you. Yeah. You're fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. I'll follow you home, bitch. Uh, and round number two. ourselves a little bit of a bummer the UFC 260 Chad because we were expecting two really good title fights here not only the heavyweight title rematch we were also expecting Alexander Volkanovsky go out there defend his UFC featherweight belt against Brian Ortega looking like a banger looking like a banger of a fight that we we're all looking forward to however Alexander Volkanovsky we're told test negative for COVID as he is leaving to come to the United States, text, text, test negative for COVID once he gets here, but then once sort of inside the UFC bubble, or as we're calling it apparently, test positive for COVID-19 and the fight's off. Now, right. they say we're going to just push it to a future event. Again, we might want to wait a little bit just to see and make, whether or not he actually gets sick with COVID and whether he has any problems with it, because as we've seen, there have been some fighters who maybe thought they didn't have an issue with it, and then it turns out even weeks, months later, are still not good to go. So we don't know exactly when we're going to have this one rescheduled. But this also comes after, as you mentioned before, Brad Riddell, you know, another uh, fighter fighting out of city kickboxing in, in New Zealand, had a similar situation, it seemed, where he, and he claims, you know, he, he left, had no problems, tested negative and everything. And in general, it's like in Australia and New Zealand, you see right now, they don't seem to be having the same problem that we are. So it would seem to suggest, circumstantial evidence would seem to suggest that they contracted COVID-19 perhaps either in transit or inside the UFC bubble. I mean, maybe you could get it on the way over and it doesn't show up on the test right away when you land. Brad Riddell got angry at some uh, New Zealand report that said that he had he or his team had broken COVID protocols. He insists they didn't. They stayed in the host hotel the entire time. They didn't go anywhere. But then that just makes it you wonder more how tight is the bubble if people are getting infected inside of it. Because that's one of the yeah. things that you didn't really see happening with the bubble, the quarantine bubble on Fight Island. Yeah, this particular one raises a lot of interesting questions because, as you said, like Australia and New Zealand, where all of these city kickboxing guys are, are traveling from, is one of the uh, it's those are the hardest places to get in, in and out of, essentially, uh, you know, among all of the places that the UFC is bringing in fighters from Australia, and New Zealand seem to be running the tightest ship. So if Volkanovsky and Brad Riddell and all the rest of those guys did, in fact, uh, quarantine the way that they were supposed to, and then they got on planes and they flew to the United States. Uh, as you said, the only places it could really happen are in transit and or in the bubble. And have two of those guys pop positive is even slightly more of a, of a head scratcher. Like, I assume that they had contact with each other once inside the, the UFC bubble. That Maybe they're training together. Uh, but it does, yeah, it brings up a lot of questions about what's going on in Las Vegas because we have these problems every week. We didn't, we didn't have these problems when someone else was paying for it over in uh, Abu Dhabi when the bubble was a little bit tighter. It seemed like most of the fights, and particularly the big fights, were coming off as scheduled. 
And now that we're back at the apex and in Las Vegas, it seems like we have problems week in, week out, especially up to and including fight day when like fights are, are falling apart at the very, very last minute. And so it does make you wonder what, what the situation on the ground inside the bubble in Las Vegas is like, uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of chaotic to try to get in and out, especially with these pay-per-view events where you lose one of your main events. And, and obviously Miocic versus Ngano is still going to be a great fight. And a, a lot of people are still going to tune in, but that featherweight fight was going to be an absolute banger. That was going to be a great one as in the co-main. And so to lose 50% of your, of your drawing card for UFC 260 is a huge bummer. And you'd like to see the company get a little better handle on it than what's happening right now, especially in, in Las Vegas. It's also stuff like this. I was thinking about it after I was writing that story a couple weeks ago about the UFC's struggle with online piracy. And one of the things that Lawrence Epstein, the UFC CEO and VP, said to me was that, you know, he acknowledged basically that not all paper events are created equal. That sometimes UFC will come out here and they got three title fights. Sometimes, you know, like this one, you got it scheduled for two and then it drops down to one. You know, you lose half the title fights you have scheduled, but the price stays exactly the same. Right. And especially when you're dealing with this battle of trying to convince people who feel like I can get your product for free. I don't there's no real downside to me doing that. It feels easy and like uh, like pretty consequence risk free to me to do it that way. And when your pitch to them is it's a premium price because it's set there on the schedule. And regardless of what the offering looks like by the time we actually get to fight night, the price isn't going to change at all. It is what it is. That that is part of the the sales pitch to fans that the UFC seems like it just has not shown any interest in even revisiting. And I get how you might be thinking if you're the UFC, if we start telling people some pay-per-views are worth this and other pay-per-views are worth that, then maybe it's a, it's a bit of a slippery slope there. But then... We also notice that you keep timing the pay-per-view price increases for every time Conor McGregor fights. You know, yeah. that, that that's when, you know, he shows up January and then the next January. And those are the two times when the price suddenly goes up five bucks. We can't help but notice that. The UFC has also done similar things before. It's like, okay, here's a really big one. We'll time that for a pay-per-view price increase. So you are telling us sometimes that maybe quality is affected, uh, is, is tied to price in some way or another. And then here in an instance like this, you go, well... We had planned to give you two, but instead we just got one. You can deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I assume it would cause unbelievable headaches to start messing around with your pay-per-view price a week out. And and that's the situation that we're in at this point, unfortunately, with the with the ongoing pandemic. It's just like these these fights seem to drop out at the last minute more, more often than not. Uh, and I do... Uh, I agree with you that, it, like we, that in general, we have like a, this weird relationship with the price of a pay-per-view and how you know some pay-per-views seem like they're going to be really worth the money that you're going to pay for them and some of them don't and some of their quality changes as the card changes uh but at the same time like this the pandemic is is wreaking so much havoc with the with the cards themselves like i don't know how you would i don't know how you would change the price at this late date although i guess you know the devil's advocate would say the ufc is in a better position to do that now than they ever have been before just right. given that all all of it is kind of streamlined under the espn and espn plus banner at at this point uh but yeah man like you'd think just in terms of of the bubble the quote unquote bubble which seems pretty permeable at this point uh you might want to see if you could invest some more money in uh 
in like keeping these guys there longer or, or like trying to emulate more of a fight Island kind of situation because uh, to lose a featherweight title fight this close to UFC 260, it's not going to kill the pay-per-view obviously, but it's, it's, it's not an insignificant blow either. Don't you think that what the UFC is telling themselves internally is, Hey, it's almost over. Like you, if we were going to spend the money to really tighten up this quarantine stuff and the, and the bubble, the time to do it would have been six months ago. Now, you know, people are getting vaccinated. The end is in sight. Clearly, the UFC thinks it's almost over because we're going to Jacksonville and I'm going to pack 15,000 fans in an arena. And we're basically looking at saying goodbye to doing all our events at the Apex. And clearly, that that, that mentality suggests that the UFC says, you know what? Pandemic over, guys. We're, we're, we're back to business as usual. Now does not seem like the time when they're going to make a whole lot of changes to the, this quarantine situation for fighters. I'm sure that's what the UFC is thinking, or at least that's what one fairly influential person at the UFC is is probably thinking. But at the same time, like we can't be sure that any of that is true. And in fact, the more that we take these risks and have these full capacity events at UFC 262 and, and UFC or two, UFC 261 and UFC 262, like the more chance we are taking that the pandemic is extended, not that you can lay that all at the feet of those events, but the more of these big public events that we have and the more that the population at large starts to act like the pandemic is over, the more opportunity we give for the the virus to mutate again and mutate at some point to the, to the situation where it's going to evade the existing vaccines that we have. Some of the variants that exist, you know, that have come out of places like Brazil and, and South Africa already are taxing these, the vaccines. The vaccines are already less effective trying to stop those different uh, strains of, of COVID-19. And if you get one that just evades the vaccine entirely or evades the human immune system entirely, then you're in real trouble, man. Then you either got to start this thing all over again, which, you know, the UFC didn't want to do it the first time. They damn sure don't want to do it again. But, uh, but we get something like that jumps outside the, uh, the purview of the vaccines. And, uh, and then you, you've totally reset the clock. So, you know, as I have said all along, the UFC's entire thinking on this thing has been befuddling to me, absolutely flabbergasting to to see how the company has uh, tried to navigate this thing from start to finish. And it's going to it's one of those kind of things where I'm never going to think about the UFC the same way again, frankly, now that I've seen the company navigate the the pandemic in the most egregious and uh ridiculous way possible well you mentioned guys like alexander volkanovsky and brad riddell coming from countries that are some of the hardest to get into and out of it's got to be a, a extra blow to tell somebody yeah. like that you came all this way you did the training camp one thing you know you got the sunken costs in the training camp you came all this way you get there you don't have to fight or you don't get to fight and then the, the ufc doesn't have to pay you you know you'd, you'd hope that they like You'd get some show money at least for for coming there and being ready to fight up until a late, late date. But then you also have to turn around and go back and quarantine before you can even go back home. You did all that for nothing. Like that's that's an extra kick in the balls for those guys. Yeah, for Volkanovski and and Riddell especially to to turn around and I don't even know how you handle it if you're those guys. If you wanted, if you would try to stay in America and quarantine here so that you don't have to go through those protocols again, or if you would. You know, I guess it depends how long the postponement is going to be, maybe, right. uh, and, and even what the legality of it is. I don't know if 
uh, Alexander Volkanovsky tests positive for COVID in America, can he go home? Or like, does he have to stay here for a certain amount of time? I don't, I have no idea how that's going to work, but a huge, a huge pain in the ass right. headache and, and like, uh, like a soul crusher. If you're Alexander Volkanovsky and you thought you were on the verge of the, of this fight. Right. Well, and the added thing for him is that it's a little bit tougher to turn right around and reschedule a title fight like that. I mean, it's one thing if it's like Brad Riddell and Gregor Gillespie, you know, you can kind of throw that on any card as soon as guys are healthy yeah. and, and, and both guys can agree to go. But with this one, you know, you've got uh, like if it's Alexander Volkanovsky defending his title, obviously you're going to want to put that on a pay-per-view. He's going to want pay-per-view points since that's one of the main perks of being a UFC champion. But then where you're going to, you know, you got that UFC 261 card where you got three title fights already on that one. So you're not adding adding it to that. The UFC 262 one uh, with Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler for the vacant lightweight title. You know, that one is in May, you know, it's like two months from now. So do you want to stay in the United States and do basically a half a training camp quickly here? It's a tough situation, man. Like, there's no great solution for those guys. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. And here we go, UFC 260. Now, right around the corner this Saturday night, if the UFC has its way, perhaps the final pay-per-view event from the Apex in Las Vegas. Uh, headlining this thing, Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou, the rematch. We've, it seems like we've waited a long time for this one. We damn sure know Francis Ngannou has waited a long time for this one. Uh, we have discussed it a little bit, just because it's, it's such an interesting fight during the lead-up. And if I may extrapolate from the things that you've said it sounds like you are leaning in the direction that you think this one will look like a repeat of their first fight i am on record saying i think big fran walks away from this thing with the gold around his waist how are we going to get through this without the co-main event podcast with a mega powers explode sort of situation here like (laughs) the the podcast itself could self-destruct well first of all you can stop looking at miss elizabeth with lust in your eyes I Can't, see it. Never will. Never will. Uh, you know, I'm not totally convinced that it looks like the first one. I just think a lot of us maybe jump to the conclusion that Francis Ngannou's wrestling must have been improved just because we assume it. Like, he had all this time to work on it. He clearly saw that that was a, a hole in his game that Stipe exploited and that they're obviously going to address that in training and that with all this time, they must have addressed it by now. And I yeah. guess what... What my point of view presupposes is we haven't seen any proof of it. We're just, we're assuming that it's happened. And I, I do think it's happened. But then closing some of those gaps in the wrestling game is, it's a tough thing to do when the gaps are that big. I also, though, still think you watch some moments in that first fight and if Francis Ngannou had maybe kept his composure t- together a little better down the stretch hadn't gotten so worn out so early on. He came close to catching Stipe a few times. And like somebody was asking me in my mailbag, like, what do you make of it that after beating Francis Ngannou pretty clearly in the first fight, Stipe comes into the rematch as a slight underdog. 
like a plus 100 underdog and Francis and Ghana going off at like, you know, minus 150 or something along those lines. Is it just disrespect for Stipe or is it a strong faith in Francis Ngannou's punching power. And honestly, if you tell me that that line is justified by how many people think, well, hey, if you have to go 10 rounds with Francis Ngannou, your chances of getting knocked out are pretty high. Like, okay, I could see the logic in that. And I also think that it's probably true that Francis Ngannou's got better. You know, I talked to him for a story coming out this week, and I was kind of asking him, like, what do you see as the biggest improvement that you made since that first fight and that you that you felt like you had to make? And I was expecting him to say wrestling, like defensive wrestling, sort of takedown defense, that kind of stuff. And he said managing the fight, like an ability to, instead of going in there and thinking, I'm going to knock this guy out in 60 seconds and then finding yourself 20 minutes in and, and kind of gasping for air, being able to manage that sort of fight and having a little bit more experience in in getting ready for a title fight and then managing your emotions and your pace and your energy in the actual fight itself. Again, he knocks people out so damn quickly, you never get to see him actually doing that stuff. But yeah. that doesn't mean that he has not improved in those areas, at least like in a theoretical sense in, in the gym. Yeah, and he's changed a lot of things in the lead up to to this fight. Remember, the first time he fought Stipe Miocic, he was still basically training almost exclusively at the at the performance center, and his head coach Fernand Lopez was living in Paris, and they were trying to basically do Zoom calls to uh, to figure out the training and and check in with each other and how all of the game planning was going. Now he's over at Extreme Couture, uh, also in Las Vegas with Eric Nixick and and like all of the you know, the infrastructure available to him there. You got to think that is, has paid dividends in, in, in terms of improvements. Uh, Stipe Miocic is a little bit older. Like he's said some stuff as of late that make it seem like, you know, he's, he believes he's getting on toward the end of this thing. Uh, and as you said, man, you can only walk the tightrope so many times before a strong gust of wind is going to come up and, and you're going to slip. And and with Francis Ngano, it doesn't take, all that much. And I would note that like when I talked to Francis Ngannou before the Alistair Overeem fight and talked to all of the people around him, like his coaching staff and things like that. And I asked like, what's this guy, what do you think is his best quality? Like, well, how has he been able to be so successful up to this point? And every single one of them said, it's his, it's his brain. It's his fight acumen. It's the fact that, uh, he's one of these athletes that you only have to show him something one time and he's got it and it's in his tool bag and he'll use it in the next fight. So while I agree that like closing the defensive wrestling hole in your game is probably the most difficult thing to do in mixed martial arts, I do kind of trust in, in Gano's ability. I trust in the work that he's done in between fights and the changes that he's made, not obviously to make him a world-class wrestler, but like how many of those takedowns does he have to stuff? One? Two? Zero? I don't know. I just think it, it feels like his time more than anything else. You know, I'm uh I'm more I do more witchcraft over here than science. And uh feels to me like this is it's gonna be Francis Ngano's time coming out of this thing. You do do frankly too much witchcraft. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. But you bring it up and to me it's the biggest variable that it's tough to call in this fight is is Stipe Miosic still the same guy who beat Francis Ngano? In that first fight, because he's 38, closing in on 39, I believe, this summer. And since they fought, he spent nearly an hour in the cage with Daniel Cormier over the course of three fights. 
he came out the better in that. You know, it, it was a close series. He got knocked out the first one, comes back and knocks DC out after getting off to a little bit of a rough start in the second one and wins the decision in the third one. But it's like, it's it's a grind. Like, those those are three hard fights that can take a toll on you. And that's not just, you know, that because you guys took turns punt, poking each other in the eye either. That just that that amount of hard fighting against a good fighter like that, especially as you're in your late 30s, if you that could take just a little bit of a step off you, you know, you're you're just maybe not as quick, maybe not quite as sharp as you were then, and that could be all it takes against Francis Ngannou. So the difference between an uppercut grazing right past your ear and you know landing on your skull and knocking you down, and that yeah, that's the thing for me that it's hardest to call because it does feel like we've been looking at Stipe for a while now, waiting for one of those nights, like Dana White likes to say, where you show up and you're old. And yeah. you don't even have to show up and be old against someone like Francis Gunner. You just have to show up and not be perfect. And that guy can clip you. Yeah. And it's I, like, I don't want to totally discount Steve Miocic, obviously, either, since he has systematically exceeded expectations all the way through his entire UFC career and especially his his paratitle runs here. Like that guy is is one of the best UFC heavyweights we've ever seen. And if he does wrestle Francis Ngannou down for five rounds and wins a decision or chokes him out or something late in the fight. I'm not going to be completely shocked. I'll, it's not how I necessarily think this one's going to go, but like uh, that there's a definite possibility that that is how this one could in fact play out. So like, you don't want to just totally overlook Miocic either. That's, that would be the wrong thing to do. Um, but I don't know, man, like uh, he, he, as you said, like he's just, he's been doing this for a while those three pretty grueling fights against Daniel Cormier. And it feels like, especially in the heavyweight division, it's hard to be that good for that long without some stuff going wrong, just because there's the margin for error is so slim and there's so many different ways that things can go south on you. So I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting fight. Like if you think, let's say Miocic does this, let's say he wins. Do you think he retires after this? Because he's, he's made a lot of noise about getting, getting on the second half of this thing. I mean, do you think that... He he wins this, and obviously the UFC is going to want to get in his ear about John Jones. Don't you think he wants that one, that big payday yeah. and that big legacy fight? Because if you go out there and yeah. you beat John Jones, you retire after that one. You know? Yeah, I, I can. I suppose it it comes down to how realistic maybe that is, and how close the UFC and John Jones are far apart they actually are in terms of their negotiations. It seems like the UFC would like us to believe that they are very close. And it would seem John Jones would like us to think that they are not relatively all that close to having him return to the cage. One of the things I wonder is, does does Stipe and does his team approach this like, all right, same fight as before, same plan as before. That guy, I don't care what anybody says, he still can't stop your takedowns. And basically, the guy asked Eric Nixick about this, like, do you think that they are looking at it like, we'll just do the same thing. He couldn't stop it then. He he won't be able to stop it now. And he was like, you know, if I were them, I might be thinking that. Like, basically, if you're, you're a football team and you're running it up the middle and you're getting six, seven, eight yards of carry, you keep running up the middle until they show you they can stop you. And yeah. I, I'm, I'll be curious to see if the approach from Stipe is basically based on Francis Ngannou being the same guy if they think he is who we thought he was yeah and uh, you know he's, he's Miocic is crafty too so yeah. like, if there's some new new wrinkles out there I wouldn't be all that surprised but I guess my question would be what what else is there like what else would you do like I don't think you want to get in a stand and bang with the guy stand and bang yeah, I don't I don't think you want to do that man but maybe maybe you surprise him 
One like more that. drop kick. Yep. Flying drop kick right off the bat. Right in the face. Yeah. There you go. Yep. He's not that's what he, he's not expecting that. Damn, did I just give All away right, the game plan? Shit. Yeah, probably. My bad. Uh, now that guy that guy with the mustache who looks like a firefighter in Stephen Miocic's corner is gonna be super mad at you. <laughs> I don't want that guy mad at me. All right, let's do just saying stuff, uh, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I don't know if you notice, but down here at the bottom of the UFC 260 card on the prelims, facing off against Marc-Andre Berriol, is Abu Azatir. Remember oh. Abu Azatir? Yeah, wasn't he suspended? He's the brother of Otman Azatir, who was, of course... We were told, cut from the UFC after this incident with the mysterious bag that they would then want us to believe was full of potatoes, and then reinstated, and then, of course, Azatir's team with Ali Abdelaziz claimed that he never was cut in the first place, and it is all fine. Everybody jumped to conclusions. But Abu Azatir was suspended by USADA uh, for seven months. And this is a story, this broke back, I'm reading a story from MMA Junkie, February 1st of this year. Um, he took tests in September. Azatir presented urine samples that later tested positive for the banned substance. Uh, the tamoxifen is the banned substance being referenced here. Um, on August 25th, September 4th, September 9th, and September 17th of last year. So basically he was on that shit. He was taking it for sure. He later... Uh, it's it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator used therapeutically to treat certain types of cancer in women and also prescribed off-label for males with various other conditions. He later provided evidence that he was prescribed it by a doctor, but USADA said he did not meet the requirements for an ex, uh, a therapeutic use exemption. Gave him, uh, due to the circumstances, they said like that he had gotten a doctor's prescription, gave him a seven-month suspension that ended on March 25th. And here he is, slated for the card on March 27th, back in here. I guess this week... Good timing. I'm just saying, are the Ozatir brothers shaping up as the people who face the least meaningful consequences for anything they may have done in the UFC? Because first, the one guy, we get a big deal about how he did all this James Bond shit to try to get this bag in there, and then uh, it doesn't really matter in the end, he's still a UFC fighter... Then his brother tests positive for this selective estrogen receptor modulator. And two days after the thing, you know, retroactive suspension, seven months, doesn't mean, certainly like it means a ton in the career of a mixed martial arts fighter. Two days after the thing's up, he's right back here, right back. And like, as we sit here right now, he's still suspended. But by Saturday, he'll be good to go. I'm just saying, yeah. seems like... We, we just need to call them the, the Teflon brothers because nothing sticks to these Azatir boys, Chad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The Teflon guys. I'm just saying. Just saying. <clears throat> well, Ben, uh, the big homie Mark Raimondi okay. over there at ESPN, one of the best in the business, one of the best MMA journalists out there. He's got a feature story out today at ESPN about the Apex Arena and sort of about how the Apex – uh, saved the UFC's ass, essentially, during the pandemic. He's got quotes in here from Craig Borsari, UFC executive. He's got quotes in here from Daniel Cormier. He's got quotes from Israel Adesanya, kind of about what it's like to to, to fight at the apex. Uh, he's got uh, quotes in here from Tim O'Toole, the UFC vice president of event production. Right in the middle of this thing is the one quote in the entire story 
from Dana White. I'm just going to read the quote to you here. Okay. The apex is one of the smartest things we've done in 20 years. Timing is everything in life. And this place was done just in time for a global pandemic. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, okay, player. (laughs) Not, hey, man, we got super lucky. Not, nobody expected the business to shut down for a global pandemic. Not, wow, what, what, how serendipitous that we just happened to have this arena at our disposal when we needed it the most. No, the apex is one of the smartest things we've done in 20 years. Timing is everything in life, and this place was done just in time for a global pandemic. Man, we know you didn't build this thing for those reasons. Yeah, he's doing the pro wrestler manager thing. He's just tapping the, the, the skull right here, wagging the finger. You can't you Man, gotta get up pretty they, early in the morning to, to get one over they, on Dana White. They, they thought they were gonna be having open mic night. <laughs> comedy showcases they thought they were going to be doing the contender series and the ultimate fighter and maybe britney spears would come down and do a do a show if her thing at the at the palms got shut down or something man you didn't think you were going to be doing a year's worth of events from the smartest thing we've ever done in 20 years come on man oh it's like i'm just saying you build yourself a wine cellar you know store all your fancy wines then there's a nuclear war and you're like, man, it was sure smart of me to build this bomb shelter, yeah. this fallout shelter. Was, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a genius for building this thing. Smartest thing we've ever done in 20 years. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Uh, we'll be back all week over on the Patreon, patreon.com slash co-main event. Head over there if you want to check out the live chat, the movie club, or the power hour. And, of course, we roll into the weekend UFC 260 heavyweight title fight, Stipe Miocic versus Francis Ngannou. And we are back here one week from today to break it all down on the proper. Thanks for joining us. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about these other UFC 260 fights. Here's your guy, Sean O'Malley. Yeah, he's coming back. He'll be back in, back in the fold. Back against yeah, Thomas Almeida to put his undefeated record on the line again, Jack. That's right. You got uh, uh, Abu Akbar Nurmagomedov on this thing also. Um, and we're doing all of this stuff in the uh, in the small cage. I guess we probably should have talked about that. Francis and Donald Steve in the literature in the small cage. <laughs>